The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Next week, uh, we will be having a sort of an all-family Christmas-oriented service next Sunday. That means children, everybody welcome to be in here. That means moms, if your kid's making noise, we don't care. It's okay. This is going to be the family gathering together, and we like to do that once in a while, not just for you, but also so that even the children's ministry volunteers and people that would normally be serving in a lot of different areas are able to all come together and us just worship together. So that's going to be the plan next week. It's going to be a lot of fun, a lot of Christmas music, and um, you have homework for that service. I'm sorry. I know it's probably like Christmas break already for some of you, but here's your homework. This will help you track with the message better, assuming I actually do this particular message that I'm thinking about, and that is... This week, find a way to watch It's a Wonderful Life. Okay? Everybody say amen. Amen. This week, watch It's a Wonderful Life. And if you want to find a creative way to watch it, you can go to the Oregon Cabaret. They're actually doing that over there. It was amazing. We saw it a couple weeks ago. So that's your homework. Now, um, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 11 today. But while you're turning there, I have a few announcements that I wanted to do on this side of worship because they will then be, if you will, captured, let's say for posterity's sake, on our website as well. They're just some, some important things that I think are really good for us to know and some celebrations, some good things to share with you. Um, one of them regards, or, or is in regards to communion. And, and what we've been doing now on Sundays, once a month, we have communion here during the worship up front. And um, a a new issue kind of came to our attention as leaders here at the church that we've never seen before, um, didn't see it coming, and looking back now, we almost feel like, "Eh, it really wasn't that big of a deal, but it was something that was sort of new that we had to think through, and so we made a decision recently, thank you so much for that, man, Um, we made a decision recently um, that I just want you guys to be aware of. I think it's helpful for the congregation to know um, about the decisions of the elders and why we're making certain things and to be able to, uh, to be transparent and let you guys know things that are going on. Amen? You guys like that, right? So, um, so that's what we're going to do. So, so here's the issue that came up. So we started doing communion um, and, you know, passing communion out during worship at the beginning. And typically what happens, just because that's who's here, the, the people that end up doing a lot of the service for both communion and for, um, uh, you know, collecting the tithes and offerings and whatnot— tend to be predominantly people on the setup crews because they're kind of here, they're already organized in teams anyway, and then we always fill in the gaps with others as they come, but predominantly that's what tends to make up those crews. Well, what happened that was brand new to us, and, and for some of you, your background may be different, you may not understand this at all. For, for others of us, especially who come from more conservative backgrounds, it, it is. What, what happened that's brand new is that we've recently, in the last, I don't know, six months or whatever it is, We've had some, some ladies sign up to be on the setup crews. And so we've had some gals coming in and being a part of the teams that are setting up chairs and getting service ready, and that's awesome. And we are so thankful for that help. But, but what it created was a unique thing where um, in the conservative background, at least that I come from, you would never actually see women actually participating in the serving of communion. It's just one of those things. It was kind of always the way it was. And so suddenly we had ladies serving on the communion crew, or on the setup crew, who, what do we do with regards to communion? Like, how do we navigate that, and what do we do? And so as, as elders, we got together and talked about this. Like, what does this mean? And, and the first thing that we wanted to do, and, and our stance here at Heritage is this, we don't want to draw any lines anywhere 
that prevent anyone from serving God in any capacity that the Bible doesn't specifically draw lines on. Capiche? Amen on that? Okay, so, so our job was then to go, okay, is there anything inherently described in Scripture that would say that that's not a role that we could allow ladies to participate in, whether that be collecting of tithes or, or, or serving communion? And so we had to wrestle through some of that. Well, what does that mean? I mean, in the Bible, it's the role of the elders and the pastors of the church to administer communion. So is that administering communion or is that just serving communion? Because it seems like it's more like sort of, a, if you know the story, Mary Martha in the New Testament, that Martha was the one that as Jesus was there teaching and the people were there, it would be people like Martha that were the ones actually running around serving. And even on my end, I was just thinking of it on a practical level, like, okay, so if we wanted to reserve that role from men, and let's say Bob Stearns is coming down with a communion tray on that side, and my wife's sitting on the aisle, okay, so he has now served communion to my wife, but who just passed the tray to me? So, like, what, what do we do with that, and what does that look like? And I'll, I'll be honest with you, a lot of our instinctual, like, concerns with this, and this is, this is a normal thing in religion in general, is usually appearance-related, what will people think? What's that going to say? What questions will come? All those sorts of things. So we wrestled with this. And this is the conclusion that we came to. There is a difference between administering communion and serving in the room as, as such that it is. And we see no biblical basis anywhere that we should draw any line that says a gal can't hand a tray and serve in the room as we're dispersing communion in the room. Now, Communion will be administered by the elders and pastors only of the church. That's an office that the Bible says those specific roles, that's their responsibility. And so month to month, a different elder is going to be up here. They'll come up during worship and will administer over the communion, will pray over the communion, lead us in communion. But there's a difference between administering and serving. And if you've been around long enough, you know that we are a staunch complementarian church, which means that we believe men and women are absolutely 100% equal. Say equal? Equal. But that the Bible does have certain roles for certain people, even within the, the idea of men. So, so another example would be this. Like if that's a role that only elders are doing, well, we've had high school kids helping because we just need more people to be able to distribute it. And so how do you navigate some of those things? And so what we decided is this. The elders only will administer communion because that is a clear biblical distinction. But as far as who's distributing and passing out a tray, we're not going to draw a line that the Bible doesn't clearly draw. That's the decision that we made. However, all kinds of disclaimers, right? Here's what we don't like. What we have seen before is maybe an area where men were active to serve, but as more volunteers came up, laziness kicked in and men have withdrawn. Um, this has happened in children's ministry collectively throughout the church. I mean, the biblical instruction to teach boys and girls the, the truths of Scripture actually given to men primarily. And so we've seen those sorts of things happen. I bet you 95% of our volunteers in our children's ministry here are women, not men. So here's what we did do. We believe strongly in the role of a man to be the pastor of his family. Amen? So here's what we're not going to allow. If a gal is going to be serving communion, her husband's not going to be sitting on his rear in the seats while she serves, okay? So the idea is this. If you're single, widowed, what, I don't care. But if you're a married woman, your husband's going to serve with you. And that is not a condemnation against you because you're a woman. That is because that is a biblically defined role that men should lead the way in serving in their families. 
And so that's the decision that we've made here at Heritage. If you have questions about that, feel free to contact us as elders. But our, our goal was to say, what are the clear biblical mandates regarding these roles? And we do not want to draw roles or draw lines where the Bible doesn't. That's religion. That's what led to Phariseeism. And we just don't have any, any time for that, frankly. Amen? So that's what we decided there. Um, and along those lines, actually, the books that I was going to give away this week, I have some ladies' books here because girl power, I guess. So, um, <laughs> so this is Jen Wilkin is the women's ministry director for the Village Church. That's the church that Matt Chandler pastors. He's the president of Acts 29 Network, which we are a part of. And she wrote a fantastic short little book here called uh, Women of the Word, How to Study the Bible with Both Our Hearts and Our Minds. So I'm going to have one of those right here. I'm going to have one of those right there. And then I have another one, and this one's specific. If you don't need this, don't come get this, okay? But this book right here is called Good News for Weary Women. And it says uh, how to escape the bondage of to-do lists, steps, and bad advice. It deals with a lot of the pressure that is on women in our culture today and how the gospel frees us up from much of that. So it's by Elise Fitzpatrick. You guys remember, um, you may remember a year ago or whatever it was, uh, we gave a book away on parenting. We bought like 50 or 60 copies and gave them away through our children's ministry wing. It was called Give Them Grace. She's the author of that. So we have free books here. Um, we haven't even reiterated this in a long time, but the rule is when we give books away, number one, you have to read it. And number two, when you're done, you pass it along. Don't let these books collect on the shelves. Let someone benefit from them. Capiche? Amen? All right, so that's that announcement. Now I have some less technical and more exciting even announcements moving forward. Um, first of all is this. Coming up here at the turn of the new year in January, our children's ministry is, con- is changing completely. We are absolutely maxed out over there in the hub in those rooms. And because we don't, it's all sort of open air up above them, it just becomes chaotic. I mean, you've got like 35 kids in this room and 35 kids in this room and 45 kids in this room all trying to do Bible studies at the same time. It's just become increasingly difficult. And so what we've done is we've, over the last couple of months, entered into lease negotiation stuff with Cascade, and they have given us an entire hallway wing of classrooms over here in the brand new building. Um, And we are investing heavily in this because what we didn't want to do is go from carpeted, decorated children's wing rooms to just cold, sterile, just shove the desks out of the way, and it is what it is. So we've actually invested in all sorts of things like divider walls and all this so that it still feels like it's their room. You know what I mean by that? Um, And so it's just, we're really excited about what's going to be kicking off for our kids wing. We think it's going to, um, the breakdown in rooms is going to be a little more, so, so room populations will be smaller, it'll allow us to teach better, the kids will have more fun, um, and, and it'll make it easier for you as volunteers, I believe, as well. So that's coming up, and we're really excited about that, and also in conjunction with all of this, um, Cascade has given us an, a five-year lease with a five-year option on top of that. So we have security to continue to grow. But also, should the Lord bless us with a building one day, which is something we would love to have some point, uh, we won't go into something like that in such a way that puts us at financial risk. Um, but if the Lord ever uh, opens that up, they've even written clauses in there that would allow us to be able to take advantage of that when the time comes. So, so our church is going to be secure for at least another 10 years. And that is great news. Amen. It's great news, yeah. And uh, one clapper, but you're me and you, right? Okay, (laughs) this one might get some clapping, okay? So I've been talking with you guys about Uganda. Um, As many of you know, we work with a church in Uganda called Oasis of Hope. Pastor John Wabwire is a pastor that I've had a relationship with since 2007. Um, I've been to Uganda, I think, five, six, five times, something like that. Not 65, five or six times. I think it's five Anyway, and we work with this one specific church. This is our sister church. We go over and do pastoral training. We do kids' ministry stuff. 
We've just worked with them for a long time, but, but throughout our history with them, they've always been renters and uh, real estate and landlords and all that kind of stuff in Uganda is way shakier than it is here. And so it seemed like year after year after year, they were being threatened with eviction or there's a new owner and all these sorts of things. And this year it came down where the landlord said, look, we already have a school. We're moving into this facility. You have to be gone by the end of December. So we've been really wrestling through all this. As you guys know, we've done a few love offerings. There's still money coming in for those who want to give. There's still plenty of potential for that. But I have some awesome news. You guys want some good news? Yeah? You want some good? They want it. Okay, so here's, I'm, I'm only talking to you then. Okay, so... So, so here, here's the good news. Um, yesterday, I got to go to the bank. Okay, so between, uh, I, I think the, the love offerings that we took here about two weeks in a row brought in around 5000 or so dollars. I don't remember the exact amount. And, and then the church collectively and our missions budget and all that kind of stuff, we contributed the rest. And yesterday, I actually got to go to the bank and wire to the bank in Uganda um, about $20,000, which this week will purchase a piece of land for them to be able to build their brand new church and, uh, and school on. Yeah. We're so excited about that. <clears throat> They've They've finalized negotiations with a piece of property that gives them a lot of growth and growth opportunity. And then in addition to that, as I was talking with someone else about all of that this week, someone else in our church came in behind that and donated another $10,000 on top of it to go ahead and pay for them to get a temporary building up right off the gate. So they're going to have a church building by the end of January. Yeah. So... um. So just if you would, I mean, it's Africa. Deals can go bad so easy. Um, and even just building during the rainy season is a challenge, all those things. So will you lift up our brothers and sisters in Uganda and just pray. This building is not just to be a church building, but our, our next step, once we permanent, you know, make the building more permanent um, over time, is uh, to turn it into a school as well during the week. So, so we have real high hopes and dreams. And for us, we're really excited. This is like now tangible moving forward there in Uganda. And so we're really stoked. So continue to pray for that. And then I just have one last announcement that I meant to do earlier and I just forgot. Um, this is one other thing coming up January 14th, Wednesday night, January 14th. Um, we're going to do something really unique and fun that I want to encourage you guys to all come. Um, we're going to be having a joint service that Wednesday night with four other churches from the valley, all coming here. And uh, we're just going to fill this place up. We're going to be here with Medford Naz, the Nazarene church up on the hill. Uh, First Baptist Church. That's our landlords. You kind of have to invite them. Um, <laughs> Westminster Presbyterian and Rogue Valley Fellowship. And so all of us will be all gathered together here. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to have a time just of worship. There'll be some kids activities and other areas going on. We're going to worship together. And then what we're going to be doing is all that myself and the other four pastors of those churches are going to be up on stage together in sort of a round table. And we're going to have sort of open discussion as well as Q&A with the audience to talk about what does it look like for us to engage the culture of Medford, Oregon specifically with the gospel and how we can continue to spread the gospel and reach out to people in need in our valley. Should be an awesome time of fellowship, getting to learn from one another, hear different things that are going on. They're going to be talking about it on the Christian radio locally. It's going to be a big thing. So I want to encourage you guys to come, set up crew people. We'll probably need some help. We'll get word out on that. January 14th, that sound good to you guys? All right. Well, we should just close in prayer by now, right? It's like, <laughs> no. Okay, let's dig in. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, stick your hand up nice and high. We'll make sure one of these guys get one to you. If you do not own a Bible, this Bible is a gift for you. We got one on the front row down here, guys. Um, if you don't own one, that's our gift to you. We pray that it will serve you well. I'm gonna read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses one through 15. 
and then preach a really non-Christmassy sounding message. 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 1. And I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be, excuse me, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you received or accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches then by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need, so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because do not I love you? God knows I do. And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. God, we ask that you would give us grace as we look at these things. I pray, God, you would give me the grace of your Holy Spirit to be able to speak your word with your heart and your intent. As we often pray, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O my King, my Rock, my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, if you're new here at Heritage, I'm going to give you a quick little theology thing here. I just finished studying for finals this week, so my brain's still kind of in that mood. When we here at Heritage approach the scriptures, like when we take a text like this, before we teach it, there's a specific approach that we, the teachers here, take when we come to it. We don't just open it up and go, oh, we'll just say this. There's an actual method, an actual approach. And and the method that we use is referred to as the historical grammatical interpretive approach. Big words, is historical, grammatical. This is really all that means. It means that in the scriptures, these letters or these books or whatever it is that we're studying at that given time are given to us as a really almost secondhand. What I mean by that is this. This was written in a real time. What we're studying here is a letter written to a church in the place called Corinth. It was written by a real man in real history, in real time and space, concerning real issues, real developments, real people, and delivered to a real and actual church. And therefore, because it was written in a real historical setting, our goal or our responsibility as students of the word should always be to approach it in that vein. And what I mean by that is this. When we come to the text, our primary responsibility, or step one, if you will, is to say, what did this mean to them? 
because this was written to real people. And we've been blessed by the grace of God in our day and age to have a ton of resources to be able to go and study the scriptures and study the cultures and study the context. And so we, more than any other people in the history of the world, have the opportunity to come and see what did this mean? What was the real context and what did it mean? Because if we're extracting meaning from a passage that would have made no sense and wouldn't have applied to them at all, we're probably wrong someplace because they were written for a real purpose. And so in this text, that's the approach that I bring as I was reading these things. That also means, though, for us here in the congregation, that as we're hearing and receiving those things, it's important for us to understand the culture and the context of what's going on in that day and age. Which is why time and time and time again, we've taken sort of this running start to these passages. We're almost done with 2 Corinthians. You've heard me tell this thing a million times. You're only going to hear it three or four more. But it's important to understand that this letter was written by Paul to a church he planted. This was his church. I mean, we're six years in now. So I've been with you guys for really six and a half years now, but according to, if we were to use the same analogy or, or time frame that Paul uses here, what it would mean is about a year and a half ago, I left. Someone else has, that was a clap. No, someone else, someone else has come in, is now pastoring, leading the church, and now I've gone, and I've gone somewhere else, and I'm starting a new church. I'm in Ephesus, or I'm in wherever he went during all those different times. But what we also know is that in the time since Paul had planted that church, five years previously, some stuff came up. There was some massive sin, massive issues, horrible, um, everything from sexual issues to division within the church to confusion and fighting over genders and all sorts of things had come up. And so Paul wrote a letter back to the church to address them. We know that letter as what? First Corinthians. That's the first letter. So that letter gets sent and some time goes by and some people came in. And there were a lot of questions about Paul and his authority and his apostleship. And is he really a man of God? I mean, you never even see him anymore. He came, started this church, and now he's off somewhere writing letters, always trying to control you. What's up with that guy? And these false teachers start spinning a lot of deception, a lot of lies, a lot of division. And Paul gets wind of it. And so he comes to Corinth to try to visit them because he says, even in 1 Corinthians, he's like, you don't have many other spiritual fathers. In other words, like, you are like my children. Like, I care about you. And he hears what's going on. He's like, all right, I'm coming. I'm co- oh, you didn't remind me. Did, I just didn't hear you. Uh, children's wing, by the way, we need volunteers for setup in the new children's wing and all that kind of stuff. I'll talk to you about that later. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that. Totally forgot where I was now. Uh, Paul wrote a letter. Comes to see him again because he loves him and he wants to deal with us, right? But when he shows up, the, the false teachers that were there in Corinth spun so many different things against him that when Paul shows up, he gets crushed and he gets run out of town on a rail, which they use against him. Oh, look at that coward. He's on the run. Oh, he writes a big letter, but he can't do anything in person. And, and they, just, they just rail on this guy. So he goes back. He writes out another letter. It's referred to as the harsh letter where he really deals with them. We don't have that letter preserved. It'd be amazing if we did because some of Paul's letters that aren't called harsh are, well, like this one, harsh. So it'd be amazing to see what it is, but, but it's not been preserved. That letter we don't have. And then Paul's waiting to hear. How are they going to respond? What's going to happen? Are they going to repent? Are they going to be angry? Do they even get it? So he takes a guy named Titus, his boy, his disciple. He says, Titus, this is killing me. 
I'm grieving over this. Go to Corinth, find out what's going on. I'm going to go to Macedonia. You meet me there and bring report. And the scriptures tell us Paul had a really difficult time in Macedonia. He was stressed. He was depressed. He was fearful. There was opposition. And Titus, for a long time, doesn't show. And he's really fearful and wondering what's going to go on. But then Titus comes, and Titus brings to him good report. Paul, they've heard your letter. They're repenting. They're changing. They're still with you. They love you. And it's good news. And Paul's like so refreshed. And so now he writes 2 Corinthians back to them. And this time, it's not with a lot of guard up. He actually reveals a lot of emotion, a lot of things that he was dealing with at the time. He clearly feels now comfortable to be able to to relate to them and to share what's been going on in his life. And at this point, as we come to this section in chapter 11, Paul now knows the bulk of the Corinthian people are still with him. They haven't bailed. And they're starting to turn from these false teachers that have risen up from within. And so Paul now turns his attention and begins to talk a little bit more boldly. So now he's not talking so much about the people in Corinth in general, but about the people who have caused all these issues in Corinth, who are raising all of this uh, disruption and all of these false teachings. And as he turns his attentions to these false teachers, let me tell you, this man who is a champion of grace holds nothing back. Says, quite frankly, they are of the devil. He says, the devil does this and they're his servants, so they're doing the same thing. And he's even said, we saw in the last chapter, he says, and I'm coming for them, and I've got some words for them. He is harsh. He's fired up. Why is Paul so angry? What is it about Paul? He's a man of grace. Should he really even write these things? I mean, Paul, come on, this is going in the Bible. You probably shouldn't say this. I'll tell you why. We get the clue in verse 2. This is an intense and beautiful verse. Look at verse 2. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. This is what Paul said. Now remember, Paul had previously referred to himself as their what? Father. Everybody say father with me. Father. This is important. This is the context for this. Paul is their what? Father. And Paul says, listen, I am divinely, or in other words, in a godly way, I am jealous for you because I'm your spiritual father. And my role, my job, and my desire was to present you as a pure virgin to the one to whom you are betrothed. So so think of a wedding. I mean, I've done a lot of weddings, and I have best seat in the house, standing right there in front of them. And there's been time after time after time, I watch these dads walk these daughters down the aisle, and here's this guy who, what a fearful thing. These They don't know nothing yet. These grooms, they don't know nothing. And here comes the dad. Here comes the dad, and and he's about to give his daughter away. Like her entire future, her safety, her her body, her emotions. He's about to give everything. And this is someone that he has put maybe 20 plus years of his life into raising. And so when I stand there in front of them, and I say, so who gives this woman to be this man's bride? What you guys don't often see because you're behind them is you don't often see the tears and the wrinkled chins, and the things that I see as a dad says, her mother and I do. You don't usually see that kind of stuff like I do. It's a fearful thing. But it's a good thing when what? When he's a good dude, right? That's a good thing. Like, I actually believe 
that, that I should love and be so jealous for my daughters that when the day comes, I still don't want to do it, but I believe so much that this is the guy for her that I can't but give my daughter away. That's what I believe. That's Paul's desire here. He's like, look, I'm your father. You're my kids. And you have been betrothed, not to a person for an earthly wedding here. You've been betrothed to who? To Jesus Christ. The Bible refers to you as the bride of Christ. And gang, he's coming. He's coming again. There's going to be this great wedding one day when Jesus returns to collect his bride and they're reunited, this marriage supper of the Lamb. And Paul's saying, so I'm your spiritual father and my job, my responsibility is I want to be the one that's handing you off to him. But I'm afraid. Because I'm afraid that you're going to be deceived and railroaded. And instead of being handed off into the arms of this one who loves you and cares for you, that you're going to be sidetracked and you're going to end up here. And he brings up in verse 3 a great precedence for this. He says this, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So picture it. In Genesis 2, we have the first wedding. Adam is alone. He had no partner, no help. And so God causes him to sleep and to rest in him and he takes of the bone and he makes Eve for Adam. And the two of them together, they are going to complement one another. They're going to be complete together. And so then you have this picture and the scriptures literally says that, that God brought Eve to him. And I picture that just like a wedding in a beautiful garden setting. No one ever does indoor weddings anymore. It's always in a vineyard or someplace. So, so beautiful garden setting. Here's Adam at the front, and here comes this father bringing the beautiful, pure virgin bride down to his, his wife. The difference, though, being the place where that analogy slightly falls apart is that in reality, though they were to be wed to one another, that they were to be exposed to one another, in reality, their main relationship and their main, um, if you will, bond is to between, between them and God first. That they would be so close to God that it automatically draws them close to one another. So we have this beautiful wedding. The bride comes, the man says, whoa, and there it is. But then comes a snake. And Paul says, we have this beautiful wedding, this beautiful ceremony, and then this snake comes in, and the next thing you know, this amazing ceremony, a honeymoon that should have lasted forever, is ruined. Now think it for me a second. We're talking about false teachers that have come into Corinth. We're talking about deception and lies. Those of you that were with us a couple of weeks ago, we talked about lies and Satan and what his goal is. So think about it. How was Eve sidetracked? She wasn't stolen. She wasn't beaten into submission. No, she was deceived, Paul says. But Paul says what happened is, Satan came, and, and the, the image, the, the detail of a snake is so appropriate here, because in the same way that a snake might wrap its coils around its prey, so too, Satan came in and he wrapped coils of lies and deceit around the heart of this young woman that were promises to her, that, that puffed up her heart and her desires and what she wanted out of life, but they were impossible for him to fulfill, and he never had any intention of doing it in the first place. They were lies. And he puffed her up and said, you can have this, and you can have this. And as a result, she was deceived. 
and she wandered away. And this is the challenge that Paul fears. He says here in verse 13, There are such men, false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. There are false teachers, church, that have come up among you, and they are spinning lies, wrapping their coils around your heart, puffing up desires that you have, but they are preaching to you a gospel that can't possibly be fulfilled. It's different. They're talking about a cross, or excuse me, a Christianity with no cross. They're talking about a discipleship with no service, no sacrifice, none of these things. And the overarching banner of the entire thing is a, a, a theology of selfism. That you can be puffed up. Paul, look at all this suffering. That can't be godly. If God really loved Paul and Paul was really God's child, do you think God would let his kid go through that? What kind of parent would do such a thing? It sounds good. And it's appealing to even the love of God our Father to present it. It sounds good. And their hearts are puffed up in these things. And so they're promised nothing but earthly victory. They're promised a a method of Christianity that has no Calvary road. And they are left completely unprepared for the realities of what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ. It's a self-focused faith. That's what they've been taught. And then the amazing part of it is they spin it. So, so not only are they saying, here's these lies, believe them, but then they spin them against Paul and say, the one who's deceiving you is Paul, their spiritual father, the one that gave birth to them, if you will, the one that has loved them from the beginning and has poured his life into them. And they're like, that's the guy who's lying. He's teaching you bad theology, all this suffering garbage. What is that all about? He's completely money-driven. Verses 7 through 9 attack this, this idea where they they were just constantly saying, look, Paul's just in it for the money. And Paul knew that there were money issues within the church, which is ridiculous because Corinth is one of the wealthiest areas on the planet at this time, which might actually just show the idolatry that was in their hearts to begin with, frankly. So so their hearts are getting spun against. Paul's just all after money. And Paul's even saying, look, I intentionally didn't ever take money from you because I knew this was an issue for you. In fact, my ministry has been supported by the poor brothers in Macedonia who have nothing, but they're supporting me so that I can minister to you because I knew this was such a big deal. So clearly the false teachers are saying he's just in it for the money. He's controlling, he's writing all these abusive letters to you guys, just a bully. And then finally, he's not even a real apostle. In verses 5 and 6, he talks about the fact how they're saying, he's not even an eloquent teacher, he's nobody, and they're throwing him under the bus every chance they can get. And so Paul spins, he says in verse 1, I want you to bear with me for some foolishness. What is the foolishness? He's having to like sit here in letter, a guy who wants his ministry to be marked by humility, And he's having to defend himself, and it could seem to someone that doesn't understand his heart that he's like puffing himself up as he writes all this. I'm this, and I'm this, and I'm this, and I'm this. He's like, I I don't want to do any of this, but I am divinely jealous for you because you're my children, and I need you to hear what I'm saying because this is dangerous. And here's the thing. The opposition that Paul is facing is opposition that has come up in the church from within. This isn't Rome. Rome persecuted lots of Christians. This isn't Rome. The Jews persecuted lots of Christians. This isn't Jewish. He's talking about false teachers that have risen up from within the walls of the church. And when he's speaking of them, he's talking about men that appear to be really godly and spiritual. Really godly. Now listen. 
This is an important understanding that we have to understand. It's a hard one. It's a hard teaching. I'm probably going to rub some people the wrong way. But this is important for us to understand, okay? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the reality that all Satan does is lie. And that the intention of all of Satan lies is to what? To kill and to destroy. That this isn't a game. I told you about my friend who is dead today because he bought into some of these lies. But what we get today is an insight into some methodology into what Satan is actually doing that it's important that we understand. And and, and that is this. Well, Jesus said it this way. Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, how how many of you, be honest, your minds just went Looney Tunes cartoons right then as soon as I said that? Yeah? Come on, I love them. Hands up, none? There's a few. All right, good. Wiley, Coyote, and remember the sheepdog, and they punch in the same time, and he would always, every single time, he would put the sheep costume on, but he never gets a sheep that can fit him because his nose is hanging out, and you can see the teeth and the whole deal creeping in trying to steal and devour the sheep, right? Okay, that's kind of what Jesus is saying, minus the silliness. Uh, Paul said it in verse 13. These men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. This is the idea. When it says that he disguises himself, it means intentionally clothes oneself to appear really Christian. This is what he's saying. False apostles will come up within the church that look just like you. And not just in appearance, but are, even the words that they're using, they're going to sound really good and really Christian. And so this is what is important for us to understand. When Satan attacks, it rarely looks super obvious at the beginning. When Satan comes for us, rarely do we see cloven hooves and pitchforks. I've seen tons of spiritual attacks, both against me and people I love. Never has it come in the form of a little girl in a bed, head spinning around, spraying vomit all over the walls. Never. You know what it looks like a lot of times? Instead of seeing demonic, ghost, monsters, things that Hollywood portrays, you know what you see? Smiles. Seeming wisdom. Godly, even Bible verses used and spun in such a way, sounds so Christian on the surface, just enough Christian to hide how actually unchristian the entire thing is. And that's how he gets us. And he's good at this, especially in this day and age. So go back to Eve. How did Satan get Eve? He sounded really godly. Do you remember what he said to her? If you eat of this, you will be like who? God. Who doesn't want that? Doesn't that even sound godly? Think about it. We're made in the image of who? God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that the Holy Spirit is changing us, molding us into the image of who? God. So that sounds Christian. Hey, I, I I know God's word said this over here, but listen, if you do this, you'll be like God. Well, that's the point. It sounds godly. It sounds desirous. The the problem is the motivations become completely self-fulfilling, completely selfish in nature, and are a complete and intentional rebellion against the actual words that God has already given us and the method by which we achieve that sort of, if you will, godliness. 
And so instead of relying on God's righteousness to protect us, we're wrapping ourselves up in our own, much like a wolf would wrap himself in the costume of a sheep. That's how Eve fell. And that's exactly what happens today. It happens to us all the time. I have a quote, if we can read it on these screens, I'd like to put up by D.A. Carson. He's maybe uh, the most brilliant New Testament theologian out there today. And listen very carefully to what he says. From the time of the fall to the present day, men and women have frequently succumbed to the deceptive devices of the devil. Christians are especially open to the kind of cunning deceit that combines the language of faith and religion with the content of what? Self-interest and flattery. We like to be told how special we are, how wise, how blessed. We like to have our Christianity shaped less by the cross than by triumphalism or rules or charismatic leaders or subjective experience. And if this shaping can be coded with assurances of orthodoxy, complete with cliches, then we may not even detect the presence of the art deceiver, nor see that we are in fact being weaned away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ and to a different gospel. That is a huge and very real statement. What he's saying is this, is that when Satan comes and spins lies and deceits, sometimes he puts in just enough Christianity to make it look really good and hide the bad the entire time, and we buy into it. Oftentimes, even looking at the good to justify the bad things that happen. So we can go, man, that sounded so Christian. Oh, sure, he taught garbage for an hour, but he said Jesus' name at the end, so I think he's in. And we do this all the time. I, can, I just, can I just say, it's like an inoculation. We used this analogy a few weeks ago. You know how that works. You get a flu shot, inoculate, whatever it is, polio, whatever vaccines are there. The idea is you're actually receiving just enough of that disease to do what? To keep you from getting the disease, right? And so this is what happens. This is something Satan does. He comes to Eve and he sounds just godly enough to keep you from getting the thing that God actually intended in the first place. And so he can come in with teachers that are just godly enough to make you not notice the underlying selfism that can be behind it. The things that that teach you to to seek things other than the glory of Christ or or other than God's will or follows things other than God's word. And instead you can have it your way and you can have comfort and joy and forget this Christian road and forget what Paul says about suffering or any of those kind of things. This is what it does. And and look, this is the reality. We've said it before. Love Evangel Christian Bookstore. Love that that Christian bookstore is in our mall. Love it. But not every book there should be read by us. Like we should know who we read because the same bookstores that sell Billy Graham and John Piper and C.S. Lewis and all these guys sell Creflo Dollar and Osteen and Benny Hinn and all of this kind of garbage too that are heresies and false doctrines. And they are supported by millions of who? Christians who haven't discerned what's coming down the pipe their way. Because parts of it sound just spiritual enough to hide what's reality, what's really going on. And so Paul sees this influence near his kids. And he gets nervous. He's afraid in a godly way. He's afraid. 
Why? Well, he, he points it out in v- verse 4. These teachers are going to lead them to four di- or three different things. Number one, a different Jesus. Either a false teaching of who Jesus is or what Jesus desires, or maybe just lead you away to a different Savior completely. So, so maybe you'll have teachers that are heavy on prosperity theology type of stuff, and instead of depending on Jesus for your salvation, Jesus for your provision, Matthew 6, which says what? Don't worry about money, trust in who? Jesus. Instead, people are misled and deceived, and they're chasing money. And money becomes their God. Money becomes their idol. Money becomes what they need to be able to get through things. It's a false Jesus spread by false teachers. He also says a different spirit. He doesn't want them to receive a different spirit. What does that mean? Well, if the Holy Spirit is what God has given us to be able to do ministry, our motivation, our empowerment to do ministry, he's saying, look, if you're following false teachers, if you're serving a false Jesus, you're going to have false, different, opposing motives. And so you have people who, under the banner of Christianity, are not serving to try to build you up and draw you closer to Jesus. They're taking from you. We see this in Uganda all the time. False teachers that are just ruining people. The last time we were there, we met a young woman who struggles with her health, struggles financially. She's a single woman all by herself. It's hard enough to find any job for anyone in Uganda, much less someone in her situation. She was part of a prosperity theology church, and a couple of weeks before we got there, when she was at that church, the pastor brought her up on stage, pointed her out to everyone, mocked her publicly for her poverty, and said, this is because she doesn't have enough faith to believe and she's not been tithing. That is not spirit-led ministry. That is wicked, is what that is. So Paul says, I don't want you to be led to a false Jesus. I don't want you to be led to a false spirit. And the final thing is a different gospel. There is one gospel that saves. One. And that's it. And it is worth contending over. It is a gospel that says that Jesus took our sin and shame upon himself and died for our sake, that we might humble ourselves receive the forgiveness by faith, take up our cross, and follow him. It is not a promise for wealth. It is not a promise for money or comfort or any sort of promise that says, I'm going to make your life awesome. That promise is not there. But if we understand the real gospel, then this is just the point blank truth. If Jesus has saved me, but he never does another nice thing for me ever again for the rest of my life, I still couldn't possibly thank him enough. That's how amazing this gospel is. And so gospels that point us to different avenues for salvation, teachings that point us in different areas to put our hope and our trust in, Paul's like, these are dangerous. Look, there, listen, there's wealth coming. I'm, I'm being for real here. Do you guys have any understanding how much wealth, how much prosperity, how much blessing is coming for us? That's real. Like, it's coming. That whole thing about streets paved with gold, that's in the Bible. But that's coming then. And the road we're on now is to be a Calvary road that's marked by suffering and sacrifice and sorrow and following in the footsteps of our Savior. That's where we are now. And so when Paul sees these false teachings coming, he's like, man, only Jesus can save them. And only Jesus can give them that reward that's promised one day. And these people are leading my kids away from that promise, and I'm fearful for them. And so he points these things out to him. Now, Paul wants us to wake up. Paul's saying, hey, Christian, heritage, 
be aware. And, and this isn't just in this one place, man. Here's just a couple of scriptures. Acts 20, Paul's talking to the elders in Ephesus. And he says this, Acts 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. These are lies, twisting to draw away disciples after them. That's Paul to Ephesus. Look at Peter in 2 Peter 2. But false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Not from outside, but from where? Among you. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, a way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will what? Exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. It's Peter's words. One more, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of what? Demons, he says. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. He's saying, look, there are people in the last day that are going to spin lies. And it's the teachings of who? It's not just misguided teaching. It's not just, oh, it's just lighter. It's like milk toast Christian teaching. No, he says it's demonic, is what he says. And this is just three. Three letters, three different churches, all saying the same thing, warning strongly about wolves. Which means he's also talking to who? He's talking to us. In this day and age, he's saying, hey, in latter times, Wolves are coming, and they're coming from within. And so here's what this means literally, okay? Here's where I'm going to rub somebody wrong. We just ordered new chairs. Maybe we should have waited. Might have a few available next week. But So here, here's what this means. In a room this size, with this many people in this room, here's just the hard, fast reality. The scripture all but guarantees us there are wolves right now in this room. Said it. There are wolves in this room. Now, now, here's what I mean by that. People in here that are not followers of Jesus. Now, pause. If you do not know Jesus, you're not a follower of Jesus, there's a different, we're not talking about just unbeliever in general. Those who don't know Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. We're talking about people that don't know Jesus but are pretending to know Jesus for specific reasons. And that's because they want to take advantage and exploit the flock. And so that can look a lot of different ways. That could be a young man who's pretending to be Christian because she's Christian and he'd like to get to know her. That could be a businessman who's like, you know what, this is just a good business move for me to slap a fish logo on my thing. Though that world's changing, but still around. This could be someone who's like, you know what, I want to be in a position of influence and have like importance and feel good about myself and have people follow me. And if I learn enough of the Bible and say things the right way, they'll elevate me into different positions of authority and I can gain a following it can mean all sorts of things, but it's someone who is, not, who is not a follower. Jesus is not your Lord, but you will use Jesus to influence people around you for your own personal exploitive gain. That's referred to here as a wolf. And here's the reality of it. My job as a pastor 
and the other pastors here and elders here of the church, part of our job description given by God through the scriptures to us is when we find you and we recognize you for such is to grab you by the collar and throw your butt out. That's true. You go, that's unloving. Okay, let your kids go ride their bikes on I-5 today. Why not? Or, or, or chum the water near some seals at the Oregon coast and throw the kid in for a swim. Or have a predator as your babysitter this week. You would never do that, right? Why? Because you are loving, you would not allow your child to be unduly influenced or wounded or hurt by a wolf. Amen? That's what this means. But too often our response is, just I'll just let the wolf lick my daughter's face and hope for the best. And if he bites her head off, it's like, well, at least I was being loving. Must have been God's will. No, shoot it. This is Oregon. We have guns. Shoot it. <laughs> right? Can I get an amen for Oregon? You know what I'm saying? Okay. But, but look, go back to a couple of weeks ago. The goal of Satan is to kill the children of God. And so the role of a parent and the role of the pastor, we're not talking about being jerks, but when you spot a danger and you go, that is clearly a wolf, shoot it. Get rid of it. Don't allow, that's what Paul's saying, do not allow that influence to roam around you. But Paul's writing to them and he's like, hey, there's this false Jesus being proclaimed and this false spirit being given and this false gospel being preached. And he says, and you guys are putting up with it. Why? Why would you listen why would you allow that wolf to keep coming around? Well, usually it's just because they sound just Christian enough. But Paul says, you know what? He says at the end of verse 15, their end will correspond to their deeds. Shoot them. Jeff translation. <laughs> but that's what that means. Now, what do we do with this? You go, okay, great. Our pastor's on it. He's watching. And just so you know, we've done this. We've done this. By the grace of God, it has not happened very much. But there have been child predators that have come here. There have been abusive men. There have been men that are looking to take advantage of women. There have been all sorts of issues. In my history of pastor now for three different churches, I've seen it all. It's, it happens. And so this is our responsibility to do this. But, but it, listen, it, when you understand the purpose of the lies that Satan spends through false teachers, you've got to look at those threats just the same as if it was a child predator coming to, trying to come through your home and steal your child. Because the end result is the same, if not worse. Because he wants to not only steal the joy that that child has in Jesus now, but prevent that child from ever experiencing the joy of Jesus. That's what a false teacher is doing. So it's even worse. So you're like, well, good. I'm glad we have pastors that are watching that. I'm glad we're doing that. Sounds a little harsh. Not much of a pre-Christmas sermon, Jeff, but whatever. But this is not just a job for pastors. What, what about our children at home? Dads, you are the pastor of your home. I cannot possibly shepherd your family through one sermon a week or two if it's my week or whoever's teaching on Wednesday night. Could not possibly compete with the lies that every family is being hammered with from all over the place. The undue influences, the condemnation. I couldn't possibly compete with that. So I am not the shepherd that is going to be able to protect your home from this kind of garbage. And, and your, what about your friends? 
What about in your workplaces, your businesses, your husbands, your wives? What do we do about these things? We tell you quickly. Three things. I tell you what, we won't have the time to break it all down. We just won't. All those announcements at the beginning killed me today, but... But here's the thing. I want you to read the book of Jude. I'm going to give you three things right now to consider. And then this weekend, I want you to, or this week, I want you to spend some time reading the book of Jude. The book of Jude was written specifically to deal with false teaching and how to address it. It's a powerful, and you know what? It's short. One chapter. Amen, men? Amen. All right? But here's three things from the teaching of the book of Jude that you can consider. Number one is this. We contend for the faith. What does contend mean? It means fight. It doesn't mean, oh, we're just good Christians and we just, oh, God bless you. Other cheek. I mean, that's not what that means. And we could go into a whole thing about other cheek. That's not what this means right here. It means contend. It means fight. We fight for our faith. He says in the book of Jude, verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. He says, hey, I wanted to write you a letter and just to be able to glory in all the awesome things that God's going on, but I know what's happening there, and so I have to write this. Fight! That's what he says. So what does that look like? We, we have to, first of all, recognize we do not preach the gospel in a supportive environment. We do not preach the gospel in a supportive environment. Satan is the priest or the, the prince of this world. He has been granted for reasons I don't even fully understand, but I trust God's sovereignty. He has been granted some measure of dominion over this earth. And the gospel, when it goes forth, it is not going to find support. So we have to understand that. This is enemy territory, if you will, when you preach these things. Opposition will come. In Titus, he says, hold firm and rebuke those who contradict. But, but here's the overall thing. Like, look, if you're going to fight for the faith, what do you have to know? You have to know the faith, right? So people, I may teach here on Sunday and on Wednesday, but you have a Bible. If you don't, we've offered you free ones and we have more. But listen, you must read and know God's word if you're going to have a chance. I cannot possibly preach enough here to overcome what you'll deal with out there. So know your Bibles. Study the word so that when the, when the counterfeit comes, you're like, that doesn't match because I read something different here. And if he's teaching one thing and God's word's teaching the different, who's wrong? He is. Let God be true and every man a liar, scriptures say. So we need to know our faith. The number two is this. Did I say three things? It's four. Number two is this. We contend for our own hearts. We contend for our own hearts. He says this at the end of Jude, verse 20. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God and waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says this, look, you yourself, as you're combating all these things, watch your own heart. Build yourself up in the faith and keep yourself in the love of God. Why would he say that? Well, because we sang it last week, didn't we? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I've loved. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Because our own hearts are wicked. It's not just that they're wicked and we're pure, but, but we still struggle as well. The reason Eve was enticed is because the lies she heard sounded really good to that heart. 
The reason the people in Corinth are enticed and drawn away is because they don't want to suffer. These other things draw their hearts and draw their affections, and they want those things. And so we need to understand the reality of our own situation, and we need to contend for our own hearts as well as the hearts of others to know that, man, but by the grace of God, so go we all. Amen? Number three, we contend for others. When we see a loved one overtaken in deception, we need to have the courage to humbly approach them, capital letters here, in love. And this one's hard. I, I probably upset somebody already today about this very thing. But this is hard because the people that influence us that we enjoy reading, a lot of times we get really defensive of them, do we not? And so when you come to someone and you say, I, I know you like this, or I know you're doing that, or I know you like that guy, but I'm not sure that's best for you, and you need to think about this, that can be a really touchy personal conversation to have right there. And so more than ever, the Bible says over and over and over when people are caught up in a fault, caught up in a lie, it always refers to them as brothers. And so we need to understand, we're not coming in like we know more than them, and we're going to point out why that guy they like to listen to, or that teaching they're taking in is a false teaching. Oh, you're so wrong. Here's what I know. We're not coming in like that at all. We are coming in like Jesus, humble to serve them that our brother might be saved. And that's hard. But, but when people are caught up in lies and we understand the end result of those lies, we understand how damning those things can be, how can we not if we actually love them, right? So humbly we come to people when they're caught up in these things. And the last one is this, and this is my favorite one. We just trust in Jesus. We trust in Jesus. Listen to how Jude ends. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says again. To the one who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. Go back to the wedding. Go back to the dad presenting the bride to the groom, Jesus. God has given us his word, his Holy Spirit, the very spirit of Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel himself. And it is that gospel, that power that Jesus says, I have the ability to present you spotless. Paul, I know how much you love Corinth. You can't do it. You cannot be Corinth's savior. Only I am. Jeff, I know how much you love your daughters. I know how much you want to be there in that moment. But if you try to do this all by yourself and you're not trusting Jesus every step of the way, your kids have no shot. Trust me. Jeff, you don't have the power to keep your daughters from stumbling, but I do. Paul, you don't have the power to keep your church from stumbling, but I do. And so in everything we do, we turn all of our attention to Jesus. We understand he's the one that protects us. He's the one that prevents us from stumbling. And when we see, not only did he save us, but he's fixing us, he's forgiven us, and he's going to present us spotless, and then we become joint heirs with Jesus... Well, how can we not do, as the passage continues, that we come before his presence with great joy to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Amen? Let's stand. Will you pray with me? Read Jude this week, over and over and over. Find resources to study the scriptures. And listen, if you're ever in a place where you're like, gosh, you just ruined me, Jeff, because we did all our Christmas shopping at a Christian bookstore yesterday, and now I have no clue. What? Hey, 
take advantage of it. If you have a question, shoot us an email, something, do that. But, but more than anything, usually it doesn't take more than a couple of clicks on the internet to find out what somebody really believes and teaches. Do it. And let's contend for the faith. And let's contend for the pure gospel. Not jerks. I don't want any discernment ministry starting out of this crowd who live to just sit back and write a bunch of emails and tell everybody why they're wrong. Do not do that. But when you see a wolf come in, what are you going to do? Shoot it. God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you, Lord, for the beauty of your word. Thank you, Lord, for the warnings because we know that your word is given for one reason and one reason only, because you love us and because you are good. God, help us to know your word. Lord, I pray that all wolves everywhere, Lord, would be converted, but I also know that that's not going to happen. So God, may, may we be graceful people. May we be people of your gospel and of your grace, quick to reach out to others and minister to others. But Lord, may we also have such an understanding of Scripture, such an understanding of the pain and difficulty of sin, and such an understanding of your word that we can't but stand up when we see threats come. Lord, specifically for heritage, but for every Christian church everywhere, God, I pray, will you protect your church? Will you protect your doctrine? But not just doctrine, Lord, will you protect the heart of the church? That mercy and truth both might uphold your throne. We pray these things in your precious and loving name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.